you're shown a proton density image and T2 weighted image and you're asked what parameters have changed to get from proton density image to T2 weighted image. What this question is asking really is what is the property of proton density image? For proton density image, remember what we said? We said I spell proton as P-R-O-T and then one O-N-E, so proton, so long T-R and short T-E for proton density image. For T2 weighted image, it's T2, which stands for too long, so it's TE long and TR long. So the main difference is on TE. For T2 weighted image, TE is very long. For the proton density image, TE is short. So we shortened the TE if we went from T2 to proton density image. What steps are typically taken to make sure that the magnetic field is as homogeneous as possible? Now we said when we put a patient in a magnetic field, there are many factors that influence the magnetic field. Mainly it depends on the field of view. So the larger the field of view, the larger there is a chance for magnetic field in homogeneity. We want the magnetic field to be as homogeneous as possible because that controls signal-to-noise ratio. And there are a few things that we do in order to make sure that the magnetic field is homogeneous. So imagine uh, balancing a tire. We add small weights on the side of the tire to make sure, even though the tire is from factory, that the tire is actually functioning as usual because over time there will be inhomogeneity in the tire, which causes the tire to be imbalanced, so you take it to the mechanic. Same thing actually with the magnetic field. We have what we call shimming coils or shims, which are basically small pieces of metal that we put inside the bore, which makes the field homogeneous. That corresponds based on the field mapping of the areas of inhomogeneity. So we add those small pieces of metals, like the balancing weight. Then we have shimming coils, and we also have gradient coils that compensate for the homogeneity or inhomogeneity of the magnetic field to make it homogeneous. And those coils, both shim coils and gradient coils, will adjust the field to make it as homogeneous as possible. So again, we have the small pieces of metal that we add inside the bore, which is passive shimming, and shim coils, which release signal to make the field homogeneous. And finally, gradient coils, which also compensate for the field inhomogeneity. It's important to know that transmit and receive coils do not function in making the field homogeneous. Rather, they function in either transmitting normal RF pulse or relieve receiving the echo from that pulse. You are shown a pulse sequence, and pulse sequence is basically made up of multiple lines. Each line represents a phase encoding gradient or an RF pulse. Typically, the first line in the pulse sequence is the RF pulse, and it will contain information about the RF pulses that make up the image. And the second line typically is the Z gradient, and followed by the X gradient and the Y gradient. They can switch the order, it doesn't matter. But what we need to know is the first line typically is the RF pulse line, the second line is the Z line. But what key feature distinguish X, Y, and Z gradients is basically knowing which starts first. The Z gradient is the first gradient between the three X, Y, and Z 
because it controls the slice along the Z dimension. So it's active usually the first thing that is activated with the RF pulse is the Z gradient because it controls the location of the slice. We'll talk about slice selection in a second portion of this podcast either today or tomorrow but we'll cover that more in detail. So Z gradient is the slice select gradient so this has to be active before we do the phase encoding or the frequency encoding accesses. Now you're given a pulse sequence and you're looking at the RF pulse line and you see a 100 degree, 80 degree pulse, then you see a 90 degree pulse. And then after that 90 degree pulse with a short while, you see a 180 degree pulse. What is this pulse sequence? This is inversion recovery pulse sequence. We said inversion recovery, basically a spin echo pulse sequence plus an inversion pulse that starts by a time period before the 90 degree RF pulse. That time period is the inversion time. Since we just talked about the inversion pulse, which we said is a 100 degree pulse given before the 90 degree RF pulse, it's a great time to talk about the fat saturation pulses or fat suppression pulses. The fat suppression or fat saturation pulse is a 90 degree saturation pulse that is given prior to slice select gradient. What does that mean? Remember how we said slice select gradient is the Z gradient and it's given first thing in the pulse sequence? Well, when we're suppressing fat, we don't want to suppress just one portion of the fat in the image. We want to suppress the whole thing. We want to suppress the signal from fat throughout the whole thing. So with fat suppression pulse sequences, it starts with a 90 degree saturation pulse. This is not the RF pulse that is going to give us the echo. This is a 90 degree saturation pulse at a specific resonance frequency that will suppress fat signal. And then we give the 90 degree RF pulse at that after it. So if you see two 90 degree RF pulses or two 90 degree pulses, that means we're looking at a fat saturation pulse sequence and not an inversion recovery because an inversion recovery would have a 180 degree inversion pulse prior to the 90 degree RF pulse. What are the magnetic properties of calcium? Well, calcium is dimagnetic material. What does that mean? It means that there are no unpaired electrons. So all the electrons in its outer shells are paired or all its electrons are paired. And that's why it's diamagnetic. Well, how does it influence the imaging? Not by much, but what we need to know is it is weakly repelled from a magnetic field. And so it will distort or the magnetic field around it will slightly bend away from it. And that's will change the magnetic field. It kind of plays a role in making the field inhomogeneous as we talked about before. So any of those properties can change the homogeneity of the magnetic field. Anyway, remember that calcium is dimagnetic, which means there are no free electron pairs or no unpaired electrons. All the electrons paired are all the electrons are paired. What's another material that is dimagnetic? Water is dimagnetic, so no free electrons or no unpaired electrons. All the electrons are paired. Unlike paramagnetic material, paramagnetic can be classified into multiple classes, but paramagnetic is material with at least one unpaired electron, which would be attracted to the magnetic field, and it will cause the magnetic field to bend toward the material. 
again, diamagnetic will cause the magnetic field to bend away from the material, and paramagnetic will cause attraction to the magnetic field, and so the magnetic field will bend toward the material. And that's because it has at least un one unpaired electron. In terms of alignment with the magnetic field, the diamagnetic material will typically be anti-parallel to the main magnetic field or the, um, you know, the magnetic field zero, which is the external magnet. So it will spin alignment will be anti-parallel to the magnetic field in diamagnetic material. In a paramagnetic material, it will be parallel to the magnetic field. And the way I remember is paramagnetic is parallel to the magnetic field means it is aligned with the magnetic field and diamagnetic is anti-parallel to the magnetic field and in another way it will slightly bend the magnetic field away from it and paramagnetic since it's parallel to the magnetic field it will bend the magnetic field toward the material. Now remember how we said paramagnetic material typically has one free electron that is unpaired. Now, I also said that there is classifications of those material. So based on the number of free electron pairs or unpaired electrons, the magnetic property of material can change. For example, we have paramagnetic substances, we have ferromagnetic substances, and we have supermagnetic substances. Obviously, supermagnetic substances are substances with strong, strong ability to attract the magnetic field, and that's because of large number of unpaired electrons. Paramagnetic field, we said material that is weakly attracting the magnetic field. It is paramagnetic and runs parallel to the magnetic field. Examples of paramagnetic material includes gadolinium, which is the contrast agent, and that's why we use it. At body temperature, it is considered a paramagnetic material. Deoxyhemoglobin is also considered paramagnetic material. Again, notice it's deoxyhemoglobin. There is different status or states of hemoglobin that we'll talk about it, but deoxyhemoglobin is paramagnetic material, meaning it is has weak local magnetic field and it is weakly attracted to the magnetic field and it aligns or brings the magnetic field toward it. The next step up from the paramagnetic material or substances is the ferromagnetic materials. An example of ferromagnetic material, mainly iron and cobalt, and these material strongly enhances the magnetic field and it is attracted strongly to the magnetic field. Paramagnetic, we said barely noticeable attraction to the magnetic field. Iron and cobalt are strongly attracted to the magnetic field and supramagnetic material is even more so than just ferromagnetic material. What are common methods of filling the K-space? So we said the K-space is basically the sensor of the camera that we were talking about. And common methods of filling the case space refers to common methods of basically scanning the patient and filling the data within the case space. Most common one or standard one is the sequential filling, meaning you fill one case space line at a time and then you go to the next. But there is also non-sequential filling. So we have spiral or radial, uh, radial acquisition 
Uh, we have rotating parallel lines filling the center of the case space. The key thing of these algorithms, it will speed up the acquisition time. We also have what we call keyhole acquisition time, where we obtain the full first image, and then we fill additional portions of the next slices using only the central lines of the case space. And the periphery data is obtained from the first acquisition. Again, we can have sequential or non-sequential. The idea of non-sequential case space filling is to speed up the acquisition or filling of the case spaces. One technique we talked about is the keyhole acquisition where you scan the first image completely, central and peripheral case spaces are filled. And then on the next images, you only fill the central lines of case space and acquire the periphery data from the first acquisition. What am I talking about? Here, I'm talking about case space properties. We have peripheral data and central data. Peripheral data controls or contains high resolution images or high resolution information for the image and the central information within the case space or the center of case space controls contrast information. So we get our contrast information for that picture with case space filling from the center and then the high resolution information from the periphery of the case space, we just obtain it from the original slide. Let's now review a concept that we discussed before when we talked about diffusion restriction. We said in summary that diffusion restriction depends on the Brownian motion of signal. And we said typically fluid in the body move in a specific direction, so the vector of signal from movement of fluid is combined, and that gives us the ADC map. When fluid motion is random, the signal from that part protons is cancelled because it's random and it's not going in one direction. When do we have random signal? We have that random signal, for example, in an abscess where it's filled with fluid and that fluid is not going anywhere far, rather it's moving in the same place. The signal from those protons cancel each other and on the ADC map we'll get dark signal. As opposed to CSF signal flow, the CSF particles or protons in the CSF are flowing through the CSF flow gradient or flow direction through the ventricles, out of the ventricles. And so the signal change is combined into a vector and it would be bright on the ADC map. Given that we're interested in the dark signal on the ADC map, we said to get the W uh, diffusion weighted image, we have to invert the ADC map. So anything dark on the ADC map will be bright and anything bright will be dark, and that's how we get the diffusion-weighted images. Now, another concept that we didn't go into too much detail is the B-value. Diffusion-weighted images is typically obtained at T two B-values, one low and one high. What is B-value? B-value basically determines the amount of signal loss due to Brownian motion. The more there is Brownian motion or the higher the B-value, the more signal is emitted or ignored due to self-diffusion or due to random motion. Again, let me explain that again. We said the B-value determines the amount of signal loss due to random motion. If we have a very high B-value, we are going to ignore a lot of signal because of self-diffusion, and that's the threshold. That's why we get low B-value and high B-value, and the image final is based on the comparison of those two results. But 
the higher the B value determines the amount of signal loss. So higher signal loss, higher B value leads to higher loss of signal. Now, a question can be asked along the lines of what is the effect of using a high B value or lower B value? Now, remember what I said, a higher B value determines the amount of signal loss that is due to diffusion. So the more or the higher our B value, the more signal we're going to lose from that. So we do not want to set our B value or the secondary B value to be too high because we will increase our noise. So if we obtain image at a higher B value, then we decrease the signal to noise ratio. Lower B value will improve the signal to noise, but at the same time, now we'll start considering that that motion is not random and it's intentional and it's gonna mix the image. And that's why typically there are two B values that we use the image for and one is B value of zero or a, a thousand or a variation of that number. Let's end with this question. What is the key feature of gradient recall images or GRE images on pulse sequences? The key thing that we need to look out on pulse sequences for GRE imaging is the lack of a refocusing 180 degree pulse. Again, a lack of a refocus and 180 degree pulse is a key feature in GRE imaging or gradient echo imaging. Now we said GRE images are typically acquired in a faster, faster fashion than spin echo sequence. And we also said that they lack the 180 degree refocusing pulse. What are the drawback of not having that? Because they do not have that refocusing pulse, they are sensitive to field inhomogeneity, meaning they're very sensitive to artifacts from metals or any field inhomogeneity will create a more distortion or more artifact than spin echo sequences because they lack that refocusing 180 degree pulse.